electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Melissa Lee, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer and Faber have the morning off. Futures rally again on optimism over U.S.-China trade talks. This time it's the FT saying China's ready to boost their purchases of U.S. ag. Chair Powell speaks again at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Europe's up about half a percent and our benchmark yields back to 155. Our roadmap begins with the China surge. Stocks set for a rally at the open amid this optimism that they are open to a partial trade deal. Plus, the $8 billion surprise Johnson & Johnson slapped with a massive jury award over an antipsychotic drug. And Apple's facing criticism from China at issue a third-party smartphone app that allows Hong Kong activists to track the movement of police. First up, though, stocks looking to recoup losses from the sell-off yesterday. U.S.-China trade talks, of course, were one day away. Wall Street's also awaiting the afternoon release of the minutes from last month's Fed meeting, where we'll look for some clarity or any kind of color on discussions about balance sheet or where rates may go from here? It was a terrible close yesterday. It was. It was ugly. It just was kind of a give-up type move. It was interesting, um, actually, daily path that the market took, kind of selling off in the morning. And then right ahead of the uh, Jay Powell speech, after the European markets close, uh, starts to trend upward. It seems like it's going to find its footing. Uh, And then really it was the kind of announcement of U.S. visa restrictions on certain uh, Chinese nationals that basically people said, okay, this is kind of poisoning the talks. That, that being said, so we lose like 250 Dow points in the last hour or so, kind of getting back the majority, but not all of that, it seems, in the futures. But what's interesting about it is none of this back and forth has changed the overall setup, which is there's still this kind of uptrend that's been preserved barely. Uh, we're still kind of knocking around the same range uh, we've been in, in August, still trying to sort out the same same issue. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that you have these one-day air pockets or these real quicksilver rallies that don't really uh, change the overall setup. And I do think what it is doing is wearing on people's sentiment. I think traders are very kind of fatigued with the whole action. And that, on balance, if things don't turn out as bad as, as feared, is probably okay. I think what was notable was that yesterday's remarks from Chair Powell were pretty much in line with what the market had expected. We got your back. We're data dependent. We're going to do whatever it takes. And yet at the same time, once we got a China headline, it was all about China. So if there was a tug of war in your mind between Powell and China trade, and there was any doubt in your mind as to who would win, it was settled yesterday, I think. It's China trade. Um, the Fed right now is, is going to do what the market thinks it's going to do. That's good enough for the markets. And it's all about these tape bombs that are coming out of China. Yeah, I mean, it feeds the narrative that uh, Fed policy is not the right medicine for trade disputes. Right. Uh, the other thing is, though, people are looking at whether or not there was some pivot in his level of worry about inflation running too hot versus too cold after we got that PPI print at a three-year low. Right. Uh, You know, if you think back to the very beginning of this year, he was saying, well, these low inflation numbers are transient or these one off factors. So I do think that it could build the case uh, for that that camp that says there's kind of a slow moving inflation emergency and the shortfall is going to be a problem. Um, Not sure that's going to hold sway. Maybe the minutes today will tell you whether that 
kind of an argument will hold traction. But overall, I mean, it goes right up against the fact that we did actually see upside surprises to consumer inflation in the recent report. We get in the CPI this you week. You don't seem yeah. too uh, thrown by, I don't know, uh, narrowing breadth number of S&P components oh, no, above their 150-day moving average. It's definitely gotten, there's a lot of wear and tear on the market. And you're looking at some groups, by the way, the big losers yesterday were like, the one-time favorite medical instrument companies, right? So the, one by one, these groups are coming in and getting called in the market. So I don't think it's a, a very uh, impressive uh, performance by the market, but it's kind of holding itself together, seeing if it can slide through this phase when growth is in so much doubt and we just want the trade issue kind of wiped away. Yeah. In terms of uh, what the Fed announced it will do in terms of expanding the balance sheet and, and buying bills, at, at first thought, I thought if this would steepen the yield curve, in yeah. theory. Um, we didn't necessarily see that play out in the bank trade. In fact, banks were, and regionals in particular, still one of the hardest hit. Uh, so there's still some doubt here as to what the effect will be uh, and, and whether or not banks, this trade is really on. I mean, that whole swing to value, I yeah. think that's in question still. Yeah. It was just a refund. Also, levels, I think, matter a lot. The yeah. level of yields, not just the shape. Right. Uh, well, between banks and the transports, a lot to get to this morning with our uh, opening guest advisor, uh, Chief Investment Investments, Chief Investment Officer Jim Lowell, and Allianz Global Investors Portfolio Manager and Managing Director Burns McKinney. Yeah. Guys, good to see you both. Burns, yes. how about you? Do you think um, we are tired here, and what constitutes success in getting out of this week? Well, I, th- I would argue that the, the markets have probably gotten a little bit ahead of themselves this morning on on word that there might be um, you know some sort of uh, agreement with the trade talks tomorrow. Um, you know, I think that that was probably far more likely as a truce rather than a resolution. And you know, I think as uh, you know, Ron Bur- Burgundy and Bur- an anchorman who once said, "Agree to disagree." That's probably the best we could hope for is that <laughs> they agree to not put on more tariffs and uh, and not escalate further, but. That's a long way from resolution. So as the markets have, have moved upward this morning, they're probably getting a little bit out in front of their skis. So the scenario of, all right, we're going to agree to disagree, as you said. We're going to turn around this narrative on trade. And then what? Then Q1, we start worrying about primary season and Elizabeth Warren? You know, I, I think in the near term, we're probably focusing more than anything on earnings. It's going to be a little bit of a disappointing earnings season. It looks like earnings should be down. Uh, they tend to get ratcheted, you know, ratcheted upwards a little bit as you go through earnings season. But, you know, right now with earnings expected to be down about 4% this quarter, uh, even with the, the, the upgrades, they'll probably still end up down a little bit. I think that, that this may be a period where the markets do start to look a little bit at the fundamentals. Jim, I don't know what you want to call a, a modified trade agreement, a slim deal, a smaller deal, a modified, whatever you want to call it. I mean, is, isn't for the market standpoint, one of the most important things to accomplish is no more tariffs? I mean, if we were to put a freeze on tariffs, wouldn't that really help the markets a lot in terms of what we can expect, how we model that into earnings, um, you know, the outlook for capital spending? All those things absolutely would be the case. And it's not just a question of putting a freeze on tariffs, but hopefully winnowing down some of the existing tariffs and, of course, continuing to at least present the optical hope of some sort of trade talk negotiation that does even more than that. I mean, we we sit in a a moment in the market where the surface is very rough, whether it's recession on, recession off, trade talks on, trade talks off, impeachment inquiry on and on and on. This is a market where traders on the surface clearly getting sort of beaten up uh, back and forth on a day-to-day basis. But for long-term investors, we go way below the surface where at least we can still be sort of calm, collected, cool-headed in terms of 
what we're looking at to add to the portfolio, and also what we're looking to jettison. Jim, uh, in terms of how to think about potential returns, I mean, I think uh, you can certainly say don't be all in, don't be all out. But there's this general sense out there that, you know, we're kind of later days for this economic expansion, perhaps for this bull market. And therefore, even if things turn out okay for a while, that might be uh, sort of a last hurrah uh, type move. So where do you think we are in terms of uh, the potential for this thing just being okay for a while? Or do you have to essentially lower expectations and say, We've gotten most of what this cycle is going to give us. I think you have to lower expectations. I don't know how close we are to the actual last hurrah, but it sure feels as if there's not a lot of chuckles left in this particular market, especially heading into the vitriolic 2020 election year. So we think asset allocation clearly is going to play a key role in terms of uh, even for growth investors being able to buffer some of the expected increase in volatility over the next 18 months or so. And, of course, for investors closer to retirement, now would be an excellent moment to review your portfolio and make sure that uh, you're, you're effectively close to investing your age in bonds and cash so that you can weather what I think will likely be a, a pretty tempestuous state for at least the foreseeable future. Burns, you like uh, industrials, technology, and healthcare. Does your view on healthcare change if Elizabeth Warren looks more likely to be the candidate? Well, I think that one of the things that's interesting about healthcare today is it's it's trading the the healthcare equities are trading at a discount to the broader market for one of three times in the last 30 years, which is in, in many ways a way of saying that whereas I'm not really sure that the overall US stock market is pricing in the prospect of a Warren presidency, but one sector is and that's healthcare. It is pricing in that scenario and you know at the same time you, you know, investors do have a lot of positives to look at there. You have uh, stability of earnings. You have a, a lot of innovation, and um, you know certainly you have a lot of very attractive dividends there. And so, you know, investors do have to be choosy. They do have to focus on stock selection there. But you know, uh, and, and likewise, more than anything, because you know this is the type of thing that the healthcare stocks are probably going to be in the bullseye for the next, um, well, at least until the next election. Then it's something that really is for investors who have long-term time horizons. Yeah, we've been uh, asking for a couple of weeks now. Once her poll numbers started to jump, uh, Jim, whether it was healthcare, financials, oil and gas, or big tech that faced the most policy risk, you got a thought on that? I think it's healthcare front and center. It's a, certainly a, a long-standing overweight in our portfolios. We are watching the political landscape in the way that I never thought as an investor I would need to do as closely as we absolutely have to do. We certainly understand that that uh, socialized uh, approaches to medicine would uh, likely put a uh, intermediate-term damper on healthcare stock prices. That said, the long-term necessary demographics, the emerging market growth story, the innovation, as Bernd just said, all bode well for that sector for long-term investors. So we'll be buying on severe dips. All right. Good way to start the hour. Uh, Jim Burns, thanks, guys. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Johnson & Johnson shares are falling pre-market. A jury in Philadelphia ordered the company to pay $8 billion in damages to a man who claims his use of the antipsychotic drug Risperdal as a child caused breast enlargement. He accuses J&J of failing to properly warn of this risk, the company calling the verdict excessive and unfounded, and it expects it to be overturned. The stock is down 1.4%. Uh, when this news crossed yesterday... Uh, and it's a jury award. I didn't know what, you know, if it was going to be opioids yeah. or if it was going to be baby powder or, if, you know, and then it ended up being Risperdal. 
and that's exactly the point about uh, the overhangs on, on J&J, because you would think this is the type of market that would be trending toward a J&J, right? AAA rated, it's stability, it's 100 and something years old, and it trades at a discount to the market on forward earnings. So I think it's exactly that issue. Uh, although even if the magnitude of this $8 billion, the market's not viewing that as likely to be the ultimate cost. Yeah. Whether it's policy risk or litigation risk, uh, having to avoid multiple landmines on the tape these days. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll get uh, China's run state newspaper slams Apple in an article uh, asking the question, is Apple helping Hong Kong rioters engage in more violence? We'll explain that. Got a lot of research to get to, including Apple, FedEx, Disney, Roku, Peloton. When Squawk on the Street comes back, futures up 178. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Got a bunch of stories involving Apple this morning. Canacard uh, takes its price target to 260 from 240 and raises the iPhone unit estimate uh, to 43 million units, driven by the new iPhone 11 lineup. Then there's China's state-run newspaper calling Apple unwise and reckless. The People's Daily claims a map app that the company made available on its store allows protesters in Hong Kong to track police movements and go on to violent acts. And then there's TF Securities, widely watched analyst uh, Kuo says... An AR headset in Q2 of next year uh, being made with a third party. We'll have to wait and see. He also said that there would be another phone, right, in the Q1 of 2020. Yes, that's right. right. So um, this is a prime example of positioning in Apple. It got so negative in terms of the launch of the iPhone 11 and units that when it looked like things were even moderately better, uh, everybody's just sort of getting super positive on the stock. And look where it is now, I mean, in terms of the, the price. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been making this kind of uh, slow motion run back to the highs yeah. above 230. Uh, I do think it gets in that uh, status as a little bit under-owned, arguably, when, uh, when you're right, when people are coming off negative sentiment. If you look at the street consensus, the price target's sitting right at where the stock is right now. So it's not as if there's really this huge bull case that's been driving it. It's much more by default people saying, okay, at least purportedly less regulatory and, uh, and tariff than we had thought before. Well, Canaccord's point is uh, maintaining leading market share at all four major carriers and gaining decent share in yep. September. So their, their thesis is September results will be at the high end of guidance. Right. right? And it feeds the idea that the upgrade cycle from here on out is going to be less suspenseful. It's going to be less. Is this going to be a huge hit? It's more just kind of the regular run of improvement and, um, and people just, as a matter of routine, upgrade to the new phone when it's time. And I, it seems to support that. I think there's a, there was a lot of concern that Q4 for Apple would be a repeat of Q4 for Apple last year. And, and this map app um, sort of brings, brings to fore the, the, the concern about China and the China story. If, if the Chinese decide to start boycotting the phone, and this may be, I mean, this software was called Toxic Software by the People's Daily, the mouthpiece of the communist government. It depicted police, it, it allows protesters to track police movement on this app, and it depicts the police as a dog emoji. 
So th- this is really something that could potentially spark um, some outrage over there. And what did we see last year? China was the weak spot in the fourth quarter of last year. They had to cut prices in China in order to get those sales back. You know, I, I don't know. And, and the, uh, the bear case has been fed by evidence this week that China will uh, use their resources to target individual brands. In this case, it was the NBA. But they'll take it off the air. And they'll encourage people uh, not to take part in its consumption. The case with Apple has always been that the stakes are very high for China and for the Chinese economy to do that, right? I mean, not just taking the product away, but obviously they're made there. It's a little bit of a different equation versus the NBA, but it's a good point. 229.93, by the way, is a 52-week high. So we're a stone's throw from that at this point. Not too far away. When we come back, we'll uh, get all of this uh, into a discussion with Art Cash and his perspective on what to expect from today's trading session as we count down to the opening bell. Futures do look good, though, as uh, we get these reports that the Chinese are coming to play. We'll have to wait and find out. Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Nine minutes before the opening bell rings here on Wall Street. Let's bring in our cash and director of floor operations with UBS. Art, nice to see you. Um, to be here. We had a tough day yesterday. Looks like we're going to have a bounce today. What do you make of the action? Well, it, it is a little bizarre. Let's not forget that uh, when the market closed yesterday, uh, the U.S. and China were in, about to engage in some visa wars and, and very serious stuff there. Um, they were basically running the MBA out of China. Um, so, and here we find overnight that a mysterious but informed participant said that they're willing to come back. Now, they're willing to come back on some very simple conditions, and that is that all imminent tariffs will be waived. And the other point is that it's going to be very heavily involved in food and agriculture products. Now, that tells me if. We're still in the visa war and whatever going on. 
then either those imminent tariffs were so onerous that despite all that stuff, they were willing to come back to the table to get them off, or if he's concentrating so heavily on food and agriculture, does Xi fear uh, domestic unrest because of food shortages, particularly pork and other things? So um, there, there may be a couple of things working here. You know, you still have the harsh words on one side, but let's negotiate on the other. So it's a bit puzzling. So basically you're saying that China has the weaker hand at this point. That's, that's what these tea leaves are telling you. Well, I, I, I would think that may be the case because they, again, are pursuing the fact. And again, you know, they started out and they, if you would, a slightly weaker condition, they depend far more on exports than we do. The Christmas season is coming up. Now, a lot of people have bought ahead and shipped ahead and whatever, the retailers, that is. So uh, we'll see where it's going. But for China to keep pursuing... This has got to be pinching somewhere. So I don't know whether it's the imminent tariffs or the potential food shortage, but I think that's part of the story we're not seeing. Yet. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Powell yesterday. The market seemed like it wanted to look on the bright side for a little while while Powell was speaking, even if it was mostly just confirming what the market um, had in mind. Um, you think the market's comfortable at this point just saying, OK, fine, Fed will go again in October and then we're going to roll ahead and, and then anticipate December again? Yeah, no, I, I think they're, they're pretty certain about the first cut. The second cut is uh, they're kind of leaning that way. I thought the thing in the Powell presentation that was somewhat unsettling was they asked him about the repo yeah. disruptive pop. It was a month ago. And he said there could have been several reasons for that. It's a <laughs> month later. You don't know what happened? Uh, that, that's a little scary. So um, they're still out there. And... It also put him in the position of saying, we're going to be sure to have a big supply of money available. And then seven times go back and say, but that's not QE. Pay attention. That's not QE. So I don't think they they fully have it resolved. And therefore, they're going to have the money in. And they've heard from people like me earlier saying, this to some degree might mildly affect uh, monetary policy because you are expanding the balance sheet somewhat. And that was part of your program. So uh, it, it's going to be tough to watch. So on the two fronts, little mystery about uh, why China's back at the table. And on the other part, uh, where the Fed's going to go, you're going to hear from Powell briefly um, today, and you'll be hearing other Fed speakers, So, and you'll get the minutes later in the day. Art, good to see you. Thank you. Art Cashin, UBS. Opening bell just minutes away. Stay with us. Squawk on the Street be back in just a couple minutes. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world. The opening bell in two minutes on this busy Wednesday as we, of course, await uh, more details about what the Chinese may or may not have in mind for these trade talks this week. In the meantime, a lot of analyst research on some uh, big names. Uh, the FedEx downgrade over at Bernstein's probably the one that's making uh, the most notice. Down to market perform. <laughs> they say we upgraded this because we thought tax reform was going to help cash flow. Uh, we thought TNT would be uh, integrated better. We thought they'd be disciplined on spending. And in their words, that bull thesis has been shredded as spending remains unchecked. 
Right. Uh, spending remains unchecked, but then obviously running into this massive slowdown in global trade and the emerging markets and air freight in particular. I mean, they're kind of in the toughest parts of this entire business. What's going to be interesting to me, though, is to see the stock reaction to a downgrade that comes after the stock is down 40 percent in a year, because that could be one of those kind of throw in the towel moves. And the market effectively says, yes, that's what we've been pricing in all this time. So, you know, watch it throughout the day to see if you get that response. I mean, the fact that it's up four tenths of a percent yeah. pre-market, I mean, that's a fairly a good hint. sign that perhaps everything is factored in. But this is the kind of stock that had trouble prior to the global slowdown, prior to the trade fears. I mean, this just had its idiosyncratic problems even before they specifically said it is the trade war that is hurting us at this point. Yep. So people's uh, patience wearing thin. Uh, One-year target for Birdstein, 153, uh, which is mild upside for the next 12 months. By the way, Transport's second death cross in 12 months yep. yesterday as the 50-day crosses below the 200. Not, I mean, no, it's, some don't believe in crosses. No, but, but it's also just been kind of wearing out the lower part of this range for a while. It looks very much like the Russell 2000, to be honest with you. Just really stuck in the lower end of the range. Let's get the opening bell and the S&P 500 at the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. That's the big board. It's uh, Mavericks Metals, a gold royalty and streaming company celebrating its listing on the NYC American at the NASDAQ. It's the Food Network and Cooking Channel, New York City Wine and Food Festival. All right, so we'll keep our eye on uh, FedEx. We talked about the Apple call earlier. Only one that caught my eye other than that was uh, J.P. Morgan cutting numbers on Disney uh, for Q4 and next year. Uh, they're talking about the investment in direct-to-consumer, choppy integration of the Fox assets. Their December 2020 price target is 150. As we know, uh, some have been trying to decide whether Disney's in a head-and-shoulders pattern right now. Right. It, I mean, I think, that, first of all, Netflix got a couple of target cuts today, too. And the Netflix targets on consensus was really way out of whack because it was implying 50% upside because they hadn't really revised them down. But Disney, I mean, you're getting this impression that um, okay, we, we see the players. We see that the entire industry is in this massive investment phase. Right. Disney got a ton of credit in terms of the ramp in its stock for success in this streaming world. Uh, and then the valuation just becomes very full with Disney, and it's no, not an earnings story. I mean, even at the best case, it's going to be flat earnings into next year. The valuation got full, of course, after the launch of Disney Plus and the pricing yeah. plan. And, and the question at this point is, with all these competitors now really going head-to-head, -head, really competing, there will be no room for any price increases. And there will be only downward pressure on prices, which will be downward pressure on margins. So for a stock that's fully valued, a stock that's going to spend a lot in order to ramp up this service, a stock that will be boxed in by a a limit to how much it could increase prices over time because of all the competition. Do you pay this amount? That's the question. Yeah, that, that's definitely the question. I mean, I think from Disney's perspective, they'll say, well, a lot of that is is additive, right? We already have the factory the that's churning this stuff out. It's not necessarily incremental cost for every subscriber, far from it. But you're right. I mean, it's not a big revenue bonanza, uh, even if you have great, uh, you know, su subscribership from the outset. Uh, how about Sherwin-Williams? I know a name we don't cover a lot, but City takes their target up, up more than 100 bucks, 525 to 631 they go. Uh, on a day where stocks already done fantastically, but mortgage refis today up 9.8. You got total laps up 5.2. 30-year uh, fixed lowest since August uh, at 390. So we know housing's been working in this environment. Right. Housing's been working. Housing related's working. And I mean, I also view it as a very well-managed company and a pretty good uh, participant in this uh, in this whole world. But it's definitely spilled beyond. You know, the home builders 
as well as they've done, it's a really small sliver of market cap. It's really not a big industry in terms of public markets. Right. So you have to get to Home Depot and Sherwin-Williams and the carpet the related, makers and everybody else. The related place. Levi's, uh, should we mention, uh, obviously challenged in the wholesale area. Uh, wholesale up only 1%, gross margin down 20 basis points. Thank you, Forex. Uh, 33 cents or is a beat. 30 cents is a beat. Uh, but down 4% from a year ago. I mean, international is great, but it is uh, the wholesale channel, wholesale meaning um, they sell through other stores, through, you know, not direct to consumer. Direct to consumer is the area that they really want to beef up, but the question here is wholesale, and, and they've cited this time and time again where they have challenges, and this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who is watching the department store trade, for instance, or any, you know, the related retailers like that. I mean, we, we see the pain there. Um, so we had got Levi Strauss down by three and a quarter percent at this point. You have to wonder whether or not you pay a premium for a company um, in this economic environment that is having trouble through one of its major channels of sales. It was always a weird fit in terms of new IPO, a lot of attention on the IPO just because of the brand, uh, but really being in a, a relatively slow growth business and, and you know, the, the public competitors have not necessarily uh, been consistently great. I mean, so how many times do you pair, buy pair, new pair of jeans? Exactly, yes. Not often enough. Well, I mean, unlike, I mean, Carl probably buys one every other week, but <laughs> yeah, you're right. it's fashionable. Uh, well, I think the big question is, is the pendulum going to swing in general back to denim? As opposed to oh, athletic. as a fashion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leisure, yeah. Speaking of pendulum swinging, Roku <laughs> up four percent almost as Macquarie takes it to outperform. Uh, uh, up uh, part price target one thirty. Uh, they say that the shift is really going to start to be international. Uh, smart TV operating system. They see the user base growing two to three x by twenty twenty two. Uh, to 70 million, uh, with thir- 31 million right now is largely U.S. But we know there's been a lot of doubts about uh, Roku up you know, in the wake of what we've known about right. streaming these days. A yeah, huge debate over whether it's kind of a transitional technology and, and, and really a feature as opposed to a company. And uh, pretty good points on both sides, but it's built up such a tremendous, you know, kind of cushion of performance in there, too, that I think the trading dynamics got wild because we had a, a huge momentum run and then it broke hard. I was going to mention the semiconductor index actually up more than 1% today. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been one of the bold points that semis have maintained their leadership profile, even though there's tons of doubts, even though the tariff stuff. So, uh, you know, being up 1.2%, being in the zone of its highs, that's been one of the things. If you cared to pick your bellwether um, for the overall market, it would be semis, I think, uh, more so. Uh, than looking to transports and, uh, and, and, and banks right now. At I mean, that's, point, the, yeah. that's the, the, the glass half full interpretation. Of I it. mean, this is a group that sold off very, very hard in yesterday's session on yeah. that China headline. It's a, it's a group that really gets whipped around the most whenever we see market volatility. So to that point, yes, absolutely. Um, we are still, we still have not recouped yet here on semis yesterday's losses. Right. Um, same with the broader markets at this point at the open. Uh, Peloton, we know, has not been working. Uh, today, Baird calls it broken IPO, not a broken company. Uh, they initiate, uh, outperform, price target 28. They say uh, achieving gap profitability may prove difficult over the next, say, five years. Uh, but they do argue, given survey work, that uh, churn is low, fans like it, big addressable market, maybe not as yeah. big as Peloton says. Five years is a long time. I mean, a lot, a lot could happen in the next year or two, let alone the next five years. Yeah, I mean, five years is a long time. I mean, if everyone, I think this entire generation of Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists turned IPO salespeople 
Um, they've all just ingested Jeff Bezos' original shareholder letter in the Amazon S1 saying, we're not going to make a profit and it's going to be fine because we're attacking such a huge opportunity. Right. Well, Amazon's opportunity was legitimately huge. We didn't even see it coming for years back then. Five years for Peloton, it all comes down to what the addressable market is. Um, we'll continue to watch. Uh, Powell speaks, as we said, at 11 a.m. Um, after saying yesterday that the economy is neither too hot nor too cold, that inflation's under control, uh, that productivity is increasing, and that the Fed is not doing QE. His quote was, in no sense is this QE. Right. I wanted to ask Cashin whether he thought whether he had an opinion and whether it mattered whether we call yeah. it QE or not. I think it matters tremendously whether you call it QE or identify what it was about QE that made it QE, one of which was the Fed explicitly telling you it was QE. So the idea being it's not easy. It's quantitative because they're going to slightly add to the balance sheet to accommodate uh, the kind of reserve needs of the system in order to keep the target Fed funds rate in the stated range, right? So in other words, they're just keeping it from going above where policy would otherwise want it to be. Um, and what the problem, the thing with QE was we already got to zero on rates. The only way to ease was to buy long-term assets. And what they're doing here is very short-term. It rolls off frequently. So it's not a permanent addition right. to the balance sheet. And also, in magnitude, probably is not going to be that huge. It's like a, a third of the I believe it's a third of the size of the smallest QE right. that the Fed has ever embarked Not going to come on. close to rebuilding so, it back to peak balance sheet right. size. And, of course, in normal times before the financial crisis, the Fed systematically expanded the balance sheet to accommodate the reserve needs of the economy and the banking system. So that's going back to that type of process. I felt like you spent a lot of time on Twitter yesterday. I, you know, going I, back I and forth with the QE light, shadow QE people. There Muhammad El-Aryan actually tweeted that, that he thought this was shadow QE, QE light, whatever you want to call the it, some form QE, of QE. In my view, in, well, that it can serve the same similar purposes, QE was mostly psychological operations. It was mostly telling people, we're doing this, therefore that means we're not raising rates for a really long time. The Fed has your back. I'm not sure this has the same message, but if people take it that way, psychology can work, you know, just because. Yeah. Really quick, uh, oil is up, obviously, uh, almost a buck here, as Erdogan says that the uh, offensive into Syria has begun. I'm also seeing something on the wires that the Kurdish-led uh, SDF has asked the U.S., and its allies for a no-fly zone to protect it from Turkish attacks in northeast Syria. But uh, you can see oil's effect this morning. And we'll get inventories at 1030 as well. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Dow's up 158. Hey, Bob. Nice start to the day, Carl. A 7 to 1 advancing to declining stocks. All 11 sectors in the S&P were up, at least at the open. Uh, take a look at the, uh, the pre-open here, the futures here. And here's your, it's about 510. Uh, we moved up 12, 14 points here. That's where the point where we got word that China might be open to a partial deal. We have no idea what exactly that entirely means, but did move the markets a little bit. And predictably, cyclical sectors, uh, semiconductors, Melissa was talking about that earlier on the upside. Uh, you can see here the China ETF. This is MCHI, which is the broadest China ETF, the one that I look at on a daily basis, uh, up industrials, up materials, utilities lagging a little bit. So you see cyclicals up. Uh, defensive up, but lagging the overall market here. So the question is, and everybody kept asking me this morning, I don't know the answers, is this a truce or is this a trade deal or is it a little bit of both? What are we getting here? There's word that China might be open to a partial deal. We don't know exactly what that means, but apparently it means uh, upping some agricultural purchases in exchange 
uh, for no additional tariffs. So what is this? Uh, is this a truce or a trade deal? I think the problem the market has with this overall is that the perception could be this is a truce, which means that the terms could change at any time in the near future. And that's not what the market wants. It wants a little more certainty. So in absence of this, assuming this is essentially a truce kind of thing, and this is a good case scenario, the market narrative here with that in place was a truce is that growth in 2020 will be lowered. This is not the recession crowd. This is just the people think it will be one to two percent GDP. Rates will be flat to lower. The leaders will remain largely defensive sectors and earnings guidance will generally tend to trend lower. The question is, does it get significantly lower or not? But we've been using the word flattish all year. This is the market narrative. I'm not sure a truce will change the market narrative. You can see this in just what's been going on just in the last week and a half for October in terms of what's been moving the markets. The laggards are all the deep cyclicals, drillers, automobiles, electronic manufacturers, industrial conglomerates, uh, agricultural products. This is just in the last week and a half. I could do the same thing if I put up a month or two months. It's essentially global cyclical names. The stuff that's been holding up better, of course, tend to be those defensive names. So home building's doing well. This is just, remember, the month, last week and a half. REITs tend to be flat. Pharmaceuticals are flat. Soft drinks are down 1%. Remember, the S&P was down almost 3% for the month going into the open today. So you can, you can see very clearly how the market is reacting in a defensive manner. I'm not sure a truth is going to change that overall tone, that market narrative. As for the Fed minutes, there's a lot of comments there Mike was talking about earlier. I, I'm not sure it's going to change anything because this was a long time ago, the Fed minutes. We've had weaker ISM surveys since that. We've had weaker consumer confidence. We had that whole repo market story everyone was talking about. I, I think the tone might sound a little bit hawkish, uh, for the minutes compared to the reality that we've got today. So I'm not sure how much value we're going to get out of the Fed minutes today. Finally, we've been talking about how tough the IPO market is. We've been talking about how tough it is to do work in China, for them to work here, us to work there. How about Chinese IPOs? You know, they're still floating around out there. There was one yesterday that was filed that may go public on the NASDAQ. We don't have the terms yet, but Fang Network Group, which is a Chinese uh, a company, it's an online real estate trading platform, they filed to go public, and uh, they're going to list on the NASDAQ. That is the plan. We do not have any terms at all. But the point is, uh, even in this kind of environment, there are still companies that are seeking to move forward on the IPO. We'll keep an eye on that and let you know what's going on. We're right at the highs for the day right now. Melissa, up 193 points. Back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Let's head to the bond pits now. Rick Santelli is at the CME Group in Chicago. Hey, Rick. Good morning. We are seeing a little bit of lift in rates, especially if you consider the lower end of the range yesterday or you go to the lower ends of the range last week. Look at a one week of two-year note yields. You know, we are just hovering above cycle lows, and cycle lows take us back on the two-year uh, to September of 2017. If we look at tens, pretty much same scenario, but their cycle low, of course, in the 146 area. We're currently about 10 basis points of cushion, and the all-time double bottom lows are in the high 130s from 2012 and 2016. I guess the point is, is that we are holding, but we're certainly not having any sizable bounces in yield. And if we think of tens minus twos, 156, 143, we're hovering around 13 basis points. And should it close here, it'll be a fresh gain with regard to where that spread has been and how much it's steepened in the last several months. There's a lot of psychological issues there to steepening. We all know that the Fed is going to be 
providing liquidity by buying short and mini QE. I don't care what the chairman says. And finally, if we look at what's going on in boons overseas, you know, minus 56. It looks like a high yield because we're at minus 60 or we're at minus 71 a month ago. But look at that pattern. It is definitely firm, which brings me to the point that we are the narrowest, the tightest, the closest to boon yields as we've been in 20 months. Finally, the dollar index, even though it is backing away a bit, between a third and a half percent away from 29-month high close, you can see that chart going to May of 2017. The dollar is firm. Mike, back to you. Sure is, Rick. Thank you very much. An upbeat morning for the chip stocks. Let's go to Bertha Coombs at the NASDAQ for more. Hey, Bertha. Hi, very much. Chips continue to be the barometer on the hopes of China when it comes to tech these days. Today, with the hopes that things might move forward with at least a truce, we are seeing chips bounce. And chips have been fairly resilient, as you all have mentioned. This 118 level on the uh, VanEck Semiconductor ETF seems to be one of those levels where they keep coming back to. Uh, and they are among the biggest advancers this morning. One of the stocks that's under a little bit of pressure, although it has bounced here at the open. Activision Blizzard's the other side of the China story. Uh, Activision Blizzard having suspended a Chinese player for having uh, expounded on his support for Hong Kong. Uh, they said that it violated the rules. Activision at the moment is trying to get Chinese officials hoping to get clearance for its Call of Duty game, its new game, to be launched in China. Meantime, FireEye, one of the big gainers this morning after pre-announcing uh, stronger-than-expected uh, revenues for its third quarter uh, during its analyst day. FireEye says it doesn't do business in China. In fact, among a number of the uh, uh, breaches that it sees, they do come out of China and Russia, it said. Meantime, Roku upgraded this morning over at Macquarie to an outperform, and Peloton initiated at an outperform at R.W. Baird with a $28 price target, which is about $1 below where it actually priced the IPO, but it's still getting a lift this morning. Back over to you guys. All right, Bertha, thank you very much. Turning to the NBA and the continuing fallout following that weekend tweet from Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey in support for the anti-government demonstrations in Hong Kong. The league postponing a press event for the Brooklyn Nets and Los Angeles Lakers in Shanghai today. That's amid reports that all of the NBA's official Chinese partners have now suspended ties with the league. It's worth noting the Chinese market makes up at least 10% of the league's current revenue, so the situation has only escalated since that initial tweet. Imagine if that 10% goes to zero. I mean, I, you know, where does the NBA go for growth? Well, here's the thing. Like, by what law does a sports league need to grow? I mean, not that they don't want to. Of course, you have to expand your audience if you, if you want to grow, but it's not like a public company with fiduciary duties that says we have okay. to find the next market. It's 30 billionaires on these teams. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So, so let's say the NBA says, forget it. Forget China. We're going to let that 10% of revenues go to zero. What should these American companies do? That's a great question. Yes. The publicly traded companies. I mean, are we, are we going to face a situation where American companies who get entangled um, somehow with maybe an employee backing the Hong Kong processors, et cetera, faces not only protests in China, but also protests here for not standing up for the freedom of speech? 
I mean, it's really a, literally a double-edged sword for a lot of these companies trying to wade through this political oh, Absolutely. Mess. And if it's not the Hong Kong protesters, maybe it's one China policy. What is Taiwan considered part of China? Right. And does your marketing material reflect that? Uh, we saw Tiffany earlier in the week. Uh, yep. This is not the last time we're going to see companies have to make tough calls. Right? No. I totally agree. Um, I mean, obviously, it's been all about compromise just to do business in China for 20 or 30 years. But this is now a new a new level, I guess, of sensitivity and scrutiny on every move. People are making analogs to South Africa apartheid when companies had to make similar stands, True. withdraw employees, uh, stop expansion. We'll see where it all goes. For now, though, uh, short-term optimism on the trade talks this week. Dow's up 180. Let's walk on the streets back in a moment. Take a look at the biggest gainers so far this week. Kohl's leads the list, followed by American Airlines, which today extends the cancellations for the MAX through mid-January. Uh, does trim their guide for uh, Q3 revenue uh, per available seat mile. It says cancellations resulted in about $140 million impact. Uh, Dow's up 155. We're back in a minute. It was late last year when Altria agreed to buy a stake in e-cigarette maker Juul. A lot has happened since, with lawmakers calling for tighter regulation in the wake of vaping-related deaths. Frank Holland is at headquarters with a closer look at Juul's valuation. Frank. Hey, good morning, Melissa. That's absolutely right. Juul has faced a lot of headwinds of late, but it's still a fast-growing company. $38 billion is its latest valuation. Altria's nearly $13 billion investment for a 35% stake. Price shares in the private market at $250. But as the regulatory scrutiny increases following the deaths of at least 25 people that are all linked to vaping, it's not clear if that sky-high valuation can hold up. Hedge fund Darsana is reportedly the latest to write down its investment, valuing Juul closer to $24 billion. Sources tell CNBC the value on the secondary market could be as much as 20 percent lower now, pricing shares at $225 or $230. Still... A tremendous growth story. Juul launched in July of 2017 as a spinoff of Pax Labs. It has roughly 72% of the e-cigarette market selling directly to consumers and through 100,000 retail outlets. A Bloomberg report from earlier this year, citing a person briefed on the numbers, said Juul expects revenue of nearly $3.5 billion in 2019. However, 80% of sales come from flavored vaping products. State bans and health concerns could hit those revenue numbers. Unlike its unicorn peers, Juul does not have many investors. It does have some marquee names, including Fidelity. Juul is one of the biggest bets in the blue chip growth fund. Tiger Global and Proixis Ventures, also investors. You can see they've also invested in some other unicorns. Back over to you. That's quite a story, Frank. Thank you, our Frank Collin. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.